The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read from verse 1. This is after 11 chapters of, of the Apostle Paul uh, fleshing out for us what the gospel message is of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord and, and how that applies to us as rebellious sinners. This is what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we too, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And this is our verse for today, verse 12, just that one verse. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to come here on a Sunday morning and to adore you and to worship you and to praise you for who you are and for all the things you've done. Father, by the merits of our Lord and our Savior Jesus, we stand and we come to you in confidence. You said if we seek you, we will find you, and that is what we desire this morning. It is to find you and to know you better and to follow you more closely and to trust you more fully. So God, I pray that you would uh, work through this time. I pray that your word would lift up our souls. It would convict us of our sin. I pray that your people would hear a better sermon than the one that is preached. I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be at work and would divinely uh, empower us to follow you, to love one another, and to serve you fervently. Father, we trust you at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so after 11 chapters of the gospel, in, verses, in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, uh, the Apostle Paul goes forth in praise. 
he cannot help but to rejoice because of all that God has done for us in the gospel. We have fallen short, and the wrath of God was due for us, but he has redeemed us by sending us the righteousness of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. And so after that, he cannot help but to shout, oh, how deep, um, how, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, for from him and to him and through him are all things. After that, as we read in verses 1 and 2, he goes into how we ought to offer ourselves up by the mercy of God to worship and to live for God as a living sacrifice. After that, Paul quickly runs to the application of how this applies to us as believers in a local body. He says, by the gifts given to us, let us serve one another. We are members of one another in the body of Christ. Using the gifts that have been given to us, let us use them, the Apostle Paul says. And in our section today, this is the manner in which we ought to apply these gifts, in what fashion, in what way we ought to serve each other, to love one another in the body. In the ESV, the title of this section is Marks of a True Christian. Marks of a True Christian, and I think it's pretty accurate. It says, love clings to what is good, love abhors what is evil. It tells us to love affectionately, to honor competitively, and we ought to work hard with boiling passion and serving the Lord. Right? Ultimately, we serve the Lord. And so this is our text for tonight. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Make a quick note on the original language. In, uh, in the start of this section in verse 9, in the Greek, it says, let love be unfeigned, let love be pure. And, and, the, and the words that come after that are not in imperative form, although we see it in imperative form in our Bibles. It says, rejoice. It says to serve. It says to be fervent. But in the Greek, it says being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer. And so what I took away from that was that the tense of the verbs aren't necessarily in the imperative, although that's not incorrect to, to take it that way, but it's, this, it's the manner in which we ought to live as believers. It's not just a one-time command, but it's the, it's the fluid uh, uh, motion of, of the believer as we follow the Lord, as we serve one another. And so this, this is the literal Greek translation for Romans 12.12. 12. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer. And so joy and patience and prayer should be the constant state, the continuous state of the Christian. This is the manner in which we serve. I have a pretty simple outline for note-takers. One, for the first part, I'm just going to define and observe what the text says about being patient in tribulation, uh, being constant in prayer. And then second, we'll talk about how we can apply this and make this a reality in our lives. Okay, part one. We're going to define and observe what the text is saying. So 
What does it mean to be rejoicing in hope? What does it mean to be patient in tribulation? Well, I think to make a quick note on the first two, I think it comprises so much of what the Christian life is all about. Right? At the heart of so much of the earthly Christian life here, it is so much of being patient in tribulation. It is waiting on the Lord for what? For the hardships that he uh, throws at us in our lives. And ultimately, we hope not in the reward of this life, but our ultimate hope is in the hope of the life to come, unless our Lord comes back. And so I feel like the first two are so well intertwined. We're rejoicing in hope. We're being patient in tribulation, which sums up so much of our lives here. And then the third manner in which we ought to live is sort of the how. How are we supposed to do it? And Paul tells us we are being constant in prayer, which fuels the joy, which fuels the patience that we ought to live with. So first, rejoicing in hope. Let's define it. Let's observe it. Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. My definition for joy um, would, would, could give you a dictionary one, but uh, what, I, what I took from it as I was studying was, is this uncontainable delight. It is this uncontainable delight, and joy endures through the storm and the tribulations and the trials of life. And, man, when I look at people, when I look at believers who, who are running hard for the Lord, practically, uh, joy looks like the presence of something inside of a believer, something alive. When you see that person and the, and the love of God indwelling in them, you see something that is alive, something that is living, something that is active in them. And so there are two general places where we put our hope. We have hope in this life, and we have hope in the life to come. Hope in this life, and hope in the life to come. Here are some firm truths we can place our hope in in this life. And in general, it is the hope that Jesus walks faithfully beside each and every one of us. If, in one sense, if we are a believer here, if you are a believer here, if you are a Christian here, then eternity has already started. We are simply on a different and a partial side of it, but eternity has started. We are walking with the Lord now and will walk with him in eternity. Hebrews 13.5, Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 23, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That is where he finds his comfort. I will not fear because you're with me. That's the basis of the hope for the psalmist as he is in darkness. Here are two hopes in this life in light of hardship and tribulation that come our way so much. One is the hope that every hardship has its every good and perfect purpose in the eyes of God. I I love Job's response after the Lord silences him in Job 42. This is is Job's response after hearing all of that from the Lord um, and and rebuking Job for for complaining. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And second, in every hardship, so every hardship has its good and right purpose in God's eyes. And the second thing we hope in 
is that we know that we will come out closer to Jesus. Like we know we will come out more mature, more found in him, more stronger, more dependent on him than we were before. And Job knew this as well after, after he hears it from the Lord. In Job 42, just a few verses later in verse 5, he says, My ears had only heard of you before. Before I had only heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Now I know you afresh. I knew you by the hearing of the ear. I've only heard of you from afar, but now, now I really see you, is the confession of Job. This is what Joni Erickson Tata says in the context of living her whole life in a wheelchair. This is what she says. But the, and she's talking to the Lord, but the weaker I was in that thing, the wheelchair, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be, is what she said. All right, as, we, as, the, as the waves of hardship come our way and we cling harder unto the Lord, we discover, we make new discoveries that Jesus is stronger than I ever thought he was. And he proves faithful every single time. Praise God. But our hope is ultimately not in this life, but it is in the next life. James tells us that our life is but a vapor, is but a mist. And here is the ultimate truth of what we can hold to for the next life. It is the hope that we will see Jesus Christ himself, right? Not necessarily the pearly gates or the roads paved with stone or the cool air, but Jesus Christ himself, our lover and our Lord, knowing him better, being with him more fully and in fullness. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. He has known me this whole time, but one day I will fully know him as, as much as we can. We will see our Savior face to face. Right? The ultimate longing of our hearts is to see him face to face, and on that day it'll finally happen. Imagine your I like to do a personal meditation of the kingdom, uh, my entrance, our entrance to the kingdom of God, and you're there, and you arrive at the shore of, of eternity. This is the place where Paul says, I would love to uh, be at home with the Lord and away from the body. You arrive, and you see him. You see the one who held you on eagle's wings. You see the one who sustained you by faith, for the 10 or the 20 or the 50 years you walked with him. You see the one who walked with you through every single hardship and through every single flaw and hole and sin. You see the one who is the lifter of your head. You finally see him there. You see the, you see the nails, you see the scars in his hands and the scars in his feet and around his head. And you know who you're looking at because you've walked with him by faith, but now I see him by sight. Ultimately, we will see our Savior face to face. May that be the ultimate longing of our hearts. May that be the rejoicing of our hope. To recap this first part of our text, we are rejoicing in the hope that we have in this life and in the next. 
Jesus walks faithfully beside us in this life, and that shines especially through hardship and tribulation. And we will ultimately see him fully and finally in the next life. Redeeming Grace Fellowship, serve his church, live for Jesus, follow God. In what manner? Rejoicing in hope and rejoicing in hope. The second part of our text, Paul says, is being patient in tribulation. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation. And note that this isn't being patient when the unicorns are jogging or when the flowers are blooming or when the sun is shining, but in tribulation. That's the, that's the context of which, in which we are to be patient, in which we are being patient. And patience as the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, suffering, without grumbling, without groaning. We, we sing it so well, but we ought to live it out in our lives by the grace of God. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And tribulation as, a, as the cause of great trouble or suffering. Our synonyms I found on Google for tribulation are these hardships, affliction, and Google even gave me cross to bear. Cross to bear. Our Google's pretty theological. Um, right, when, the, when the fire is burning hot on us and the fire will come, That is when we are being patient. That is when we're accepting whatever our lot is from the Lord. Here are some truths on patience that we we, we are good to to remind ourselves of. But uh, be reminded that on the good days, it is easy to be patient. But when you know it's truly patience, when when you know it's real patience, is when it is tested. Do you know how you test gold that it is actually real? Or you test it in the fire. In the same way, our patience is tested as true patience by the hardships and the trials that come our way. And this is what patience and tribulation might look like. When the fire of tribulation burns, we say, Lord, we can be honest with the Lord, and we say, Lord, this hurts. But I'm still here, and you're still good. Right? Understanding this covenant relationship aspect of our walk with the Lord, not just in it, only when times are good, but in it because, because we have coven- he has covenanted himself with us and we have covenanted ourselves to him. And we can say, I'm in this relationship with you, Lord, through thick and thin. We can say that. And we see this example in Job after everything is taken away, after all his children are slaughtered. Job chapter 1, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I love how the NIV puts it, May the name of the Lord be praised. Right? Does, does his worthiness change when hardship comes our way? The answer is clearly no. His worthiness does not change when hardship comes. By the grace of God, we ought to praise him in the valley. He says this after everything, in the context of everything that is happening to him, he says this to Job's wife who just tells Job, what are you doing? Curse God and die. This is what Job says to his wife. You speak as one of the foolish women speak. You speak like a fool. Shall we only receive good 
from the Lord and not evil? Shall we only get good from him, but not evil? Job is saying that he is still God. He is still God, but not, not only that. He's saying he is still my God. He is still God. He is still my God. That's what patience and tribulation looks like. Here are some truths on tribulation and what the Bible, what God has told us about it. And to preface it, it is to be expected in the Christian life. If, if you are not a Christian here and you desire to be a Christian, know that tribulation will come your way. Count the cost to be a Christian. It will come. Expected is, it might be even a, a light word. The Bible tells us that tribulations are to be promised to us and they should be priced in. This is what Jesus says in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Right, Jesus says you will have tribulation. It will come. The weather forecast is already laid out for us. Right? Philippians 1, this is what Paul says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's what's been granted to us. 2 Timothy 3.12 is extremely clear. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life, you will suffer. You will be persecuted. I love the example that, that God gives us through the pen of Luke in Acts Chapter 14, Paul is in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. He is making disciples. He is preaching the gospel. And at one point, as he's preaching the gospel, the Jews are stoning him. They stone him, and they drag him out of the city. And he's there on the ground, close to death. And then after that, he gets up. He sees his disciples surround him, and he gets up, and he returns to the places where he made these disciples, it says in Antioch and Lystra and Iconium. And this is what he did there, Acts 14, 22. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples. Remember the context in which Apostle Paul is coming out of, right? Right after he got stoned and dragged out, he tells them he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? As the Apostle Paul is telling these people, he is strengthening their souls because he knows their souls will grow weak. He tells them to continue in the faith because he knows there's going to be a temptation to stop. Because that's what the Christian life is. He told them through many tribulations, we ought to enter the kingdom of God because they're coming our way. And so as we walk the narrow path, we see that the road we walk is marked with tribulation. It is spelled out for us. The road we walk is a road of tribulation. This is priced in. This is what we signed up for. If anyone desires to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Is a, is a servant, is a servant greater than his master? If our Savior suffered, are we any greater than to not suffer? This is the path we walk, the Apostle Paul says, after he just got persecuted and stoned. He goes back 
And he's thinking, these people have to hear this. They have to be strengthened. They have to be encouraged. They have to be told. Tribulation is the path we walk. And our brother Brian Davis preached for us back at Queens a, a, few, a few weeks back. And this is what he said on, on the Christian life. We want to play. We want to be a Christian. We want to play the game. But we don't want to pay. We don't want to pay the price. All right, one of our RGF youth students, I don't know if he's here. I don't see him. Um, he, did a, he did a short sermon for us at our, at our youth group uh, a few weeks back. And it was food for my soul. And he said, show me a place in the Bible where God promises the Christian life to be easy. There's not a single place. To recap this point on being patient in tribulation, let us be reminded that the fire will burn hot on us, but we still bless God's holy name. He is not just my God. He is not just God. He is my God. And please be reminded, and may may we all be reminded, that tribulations are promised in the Christian life. If you are a Christian, tribulation will come your way. I I don't encourage you to go searching for them, but they will come, as our Lord promised. Redeeming Grace Fellowship, serve His church, live and follow Jesus. Live for and follow Jesus in what manner? Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation. And our third, and the third and last part of our text is we are being constant in prayer. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer. As we are rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, the ultimate mark of a dependent Jesus' follower and servant is someone that is dependent on God and constant in prayer is how that is shown. I might dare to say that true joy and hope, true patience and tribulation are unattainable, are impossible to manufacture unless we are seeking God's face in prayer. How are we to manufacture something that we do not have? James says, you, you do not have because you do not ask. On our knees and our hands lifted up. And not prayer frequently, not prayer sometimes, not prayer barely, but prayer always. Right? Always, like prayer like breathing. When we walk, when we get online, when we're at work, when we're driving, when we run errands, we're just in constant fellowship with the Lord. And also notice this mark of the Christian compared to the other two that we have in our text. Joy and patience cannot be manufactured on our own efforts. I said that before, but we can sure pray. By the grace of God, we can sure pray. We can get on our knees, and the words don't have to be many, but we can pray, and we can tell the Lord we need his help. Another thing we ought to notice about this manner compared to the other two it's, is that he doesn't tell us to always rejoice, although I'm not discouraging that. He doesn't tell you to always be patient or be constantly patient, although I, I don't discourage that, but he tells us specifically and in other places in his letters, be constant in prayer. Ceaselessly pray. 
And the New Testament overall does not fail on the continuity and the consistency and the constancy and the importance of one's prayer life. And I want to prove my point. I don't want to just say that. And to do it, I could go so many ways, but we will talk about Jesus' prayer life and the, and, the, and the prayer life of the early church. Jesus' prayer life and the prayer life of the early church. Start with the prayer life of our Lord. After he cleanses the lepers and news spreads about him, this is what he says in Luke 5, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He is not caught up in the news about himself. Oh, how tempting it is. But he is caught up in the Father. And, you know, an application for us is, and, you know, is it can be so easy to get so caught up, caught up with church events and sports games and recitals and recreational activity and do them, do them to the glory of God. Those are good things. Right? Do them to the glory of God, but we need to get caught up in our Father. Jesus would withdraw. He would withdraw from the, the, hectic, the hectic environment and he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The world and the flesh and the devil are fighting for your attention. They're fighting for your attention and your heart and your time. But, and, but we have to fight back. We have to fight back. And it is a fight worth fighting because Jesus fought for us. As he, as he hung on that cross, as he carried it up the hill, as he was praying the night before, he thought of you, he thought of me for our sake. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. May the gospel fuel the application of our lives. And, and that's not the only account of Jesus' prayer life. Look at Matthew 14, 23. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And the application there being, note that he was by himself. Just that one-on-one time with the Lord being cultivated. I'm, I'm, I'm not discouraging praying in groups, but Jesus seemed to make a habit of praying by himself with the Father. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and slipped out to a solitary place to pray. Once again, he's alone there, but the note I want to make here is that he did this early in the morning. A lot of us hate the morning, right? It is like the hardest part of our day. But, I mean, this is, this is the, the example that our Lord has set before us, and maybe not at 4 a.m., but 10 or 15 or 20 minutes earlier that we could spend with our Lord who has purchased this relationship at such a price. Luke chapter 6, In those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Well, the application is pretty clear there. Pray all night. No, I'm I'm kidding, kidding. Um, But we can entertain the idea to be up later with the Lord and seeking his face, gazing upon his beauty, going deeper into the cross. I think we could do that. Jesus, our Lord, as as as, as we look at these Bible verses, as we look at his life, we see a man so lost in his father. We see a man who truly meant it 
when he says, I love the Father and the Father loves me. And may our prayer be, God, make us more like Jesus. Make us more like him. I love, I love what a, a coworker says. Well, he said it once. Um, he said it to me once. He says, prayer is not the only thing we could do, but it is the best thing we could do. Moving on from Jesus' prayer life, we see the early church's prayer life as well as an example for us to follow. And I'm going to only touch on one part for the sake of time, but I think it highlights just how much prayer was the manner and the fluid motion of, of the life of the early church. And just see God's heart as he moves uh, Luke's pen. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is just a, a transition verse of where Peter and John are going before they meet the, uh, the lame person by the gate called Beautiful, and he heals the, the, the person there. This is just a transition verse, but of course it's at the time of prayer. It just shows how much Peter and John and the early church loved to pray. Remember in Acts chapter 1 when they had to replace Judas, right? And Mary and James and John and Peter and all these names that don't come to mind right now, all were in the upper room and they were praying. When they had to choose Matthias to replace Judas, Peter prayed and he said, Oh Lord, you know the hearts of all. Teach us who you want to replace him in the ministry. Look at Peter before he got the vision in Acts chapter 10. It says, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Right? It's, it's just describing what they do in their downtime. Right? It, is, it is they pray. I love this one. When the Apostle Paul arrives with Luke and other people uh, at Macedonia to preach the gospel and to minister Christ to people there, this is what he says in Acts 16, 13. This is just a, another transition verse after they arrive. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside because we supposed there was a place to pray. We supposed there was a place of prayer. These are, these are not even verses of actual prayers of the early church, but just highlighting the fact that wherever they were, whenever they landed, uh, whatever decision they had to make, whatever fellowship they had, they sought to pray. They sought to be dependent on God. It is as if Jesus taught them how often they need to pray. We suppose there was a place of prayer, and so just see that prayer is baked into the DNA of the early church. No wonder the early church lived and, and preached and followed with such passion and boldness and radicality, which is not a word. I got that red squiggly line in my Word document. Right? It's not a word, but it works because they operated by God's power in prayer. And our natural instinct, brothers and sisters, our natural instinct is to not pray because we've been taught, we've, been, we've grown up in the world where we're taught to be self-sufficient. We're taught to work out everything on your own. But the Bible doesn't say that. Here are at least four things a devoted prayer life can communicate. One is that you love him. Whatever you love, you spend time with, you invest your time into. Two and three is that you are dependent on him and you are poor and insufficient on your own. You see how little you can do, how little you have. And so you go. You go to the well where water is drawn. 
Fourth, you are communi- you, what you can communicate by a devoted prayer life is that he is worth your time. Is God worth your time, brothers and sisters? Right? We sure were worth it for him as he left the air of heaven to breathe the, the, the dust of earth. And brothers and sisters, be encouraged because prayer works. Every word that we pray, God listens. I remember when Hezekiah, uh, the Assyrians were invading Judah and Jerusalem. And so he went up to pray and he said, Oh Lord, you are the God of all the earth. Please save us from this army that is surrounding us. And we are weak, but they're strong. And they have taken down every nation before us. And then a few verses later, God speaks to Hezekiah through Isaiah. And he says, Because you prayed, this is what I'll do. And a word of victory for Israel, a word of defeat for the Assyrians. Because you prayed, God says. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Prayer works. Redeeming Grace Fellowship, serve his church, live for and follow Jesus in what way? Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer. And so now we arrive at the last part of what we were going to go through is now how can this become a reality in my life? You can tell me to, be, you can tell me to rejoice. You can tell me to pray. You can tell me to, me, to, me to be patient. But how in the world is it going to be a re- reality in my life? The Bible gives us one clear object. It is by ultimately looking and cleaving and clinging to the one who perfectly rejoiced in hope, who is perfectly patient in tribulation, who is perfectly constant in prayer. We see this in the gospel. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. I don't have verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so tightly. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. As we run the race, you do one thing. You look to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith, and this is how he is described, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The, the joy, that, the cross that was set before him, he endured. The cross that was set before him, in joy, he went, despising the shame. He knew he would be shamed. But for the sake of his people whom he would purchase, he counted it as more joy than shame. He counted it as greater gain than loss because of his love for his people who for the joy set before him endured, patiently endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured hostility from sinners, that you may not grow weary and lose heart. What is the medicine the writer of Hebrews gives us to run the race and to not grow weary? It is to look to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We know him the night before the cross, how he was constant in prayer. We know him at Gethsemane who who was praying with sleeping disciples. Oh God, your will be done. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we mentioned before that prayer is is a key application and a key ingredient for any product of the grace of God in our lives. 
And as we pray, may we ultimately hold to the truth of the gospel. There is power, Paul says, in the message of the cross and the spirit of the living God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to give life to your mortal bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached. Listen, which you received. You received this gospel already. But he says, in which you stand. You stand on this gospel. It's not a one-time application and I believe and I'm saved. You stand in this gospel. And by this gospel, you are being saved. Being saved. You are being sanctified. You are, you are uh, becoming more like Christ. If you hold fast to the word I preached. All right, so we see that the gospel is something we, we just hold to every day for the rest of our lives on this earth. We, we know the gospel as we sang before in Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. I know, I know for those of you who are Christians, you walk with peace from God and peace with God. I know I sure do by his grace. That peace was purchased. That peace came at a price. Your iniquities have separated you from your God but he paid back all your debt. He redeemed you from the slave market of sin. And, and, and now we say Jesus paid it all. All to him, I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as the snow. If you are not a believer in Jesus, none of, of, of all that is in Christ, forgiveness and joy and peace and life are not yours, but they are available to you. They are available to you even now, for the Lord is gracious to sinners who will come. He says this in John, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There is a seat for you at this table. Isaiah 55, come, eat, and drink. Matthew 11, come, all who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. This is God's call to sinners in Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. The, the very famous verse that saved our brother and our ancestor, Charles Spurgeon, right? He, he was on a, on a winter morning where no one would go to church because there was like a foot of snow outside. He goes into a church and there are like two people and one of the elders at the church go up and he just preaches and he expounds on this one verse. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am the Lord and there is no other. God's arms of mercy are wide open to rebellious sinners like us. If you will take him, you will have him. May our lives of service to our Lord and his church be marked as those rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayer, joy in this life, joy in the life to come, enduring hard in the battle. Brothers and sisters, I, 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 I encourage you with the Apostle Paul, be strengthened in your faith. Continue on through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God and being constant in prayer before the battle is fought anywhere else, the battle is fought on our knees. Jesus prayed, the early church prayed, we ought to pray.
How can this be a reality in our lives? We look to the one who went before us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I want to conclude in the words of the hymn. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. We will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord, our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, especially that. We will sing together. We will feast and weep no more. Pray with me. Lord, we praise you for you are the source of our joy. You are the source of our patience. You are the source and you are the one we look to in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that one day we will see you. We thank you for the cross where all of what we talked about today was perfectly exemplified. Lord, give us grace. Oh God, give the brothers and sisters and the saints at Redeeming Grace Fellowship the grace. Give us all the grace to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Lord, indeed, as the song we sing, we will feast one day in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. Oh, worthy is the lamb that was slain. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Lord, keep us until then. And we trust you will. In Jesus' name, amen.